0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I see several guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is entitled Race, Music, and Message at the Dawn of Recorded Sound with Bill Doggett. Bill Doggett is a California-based archivist and specialists in race and race consciousness in recordings at the dawn of recorded sound. With hundreds of rare 1900 to 1920 78 RPM recordings of Coon songs and other race records in his sound archive, Doggett was commissioned in 2015 by the Sound Division of the Library of Congress to create a project for the National Jukebox, which will launch in 2017. So let me give a warm welcome to Bill Doggett to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Bill.
2: Thank you, Bernice. It's an honor to be here.
1: Well, it certainly is an honor to have you, and this is quite an interesting topic. Well, I just have to know, how in the world did you develop a collection of rare 1900 to 1920 78 RPM recordings of Coon songs?
2: Well, actually, it begins uh, early on when I, uh, you know, was a young child in the six and a half to seven, when at home, um, I was exposed very early to my Philadelphia Philadelphia source parents who were big fans of the music of African-American singers and notably concert singers, Marian Anderson and uh, Roland Hayes. But. Coming, growing up, and being in their midst, and their midst in 19 early 1960s Los Angeles was the era of the civil rights movement. I was charged as a little kid to um, one of my chores was to throw out all kinds of papers, journals, and things that my parents specifically read, and. After a while, I recognized I had a sense for history early on that some things needed to be kept and some things were okay to throw away. And one of the things that I began to discover was their programs and interests and and the importance of keeping, as they kept in the trunks, they brought from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, all these programs, uh, concerts and recitals they had. Had the experience of Marian Anderson and Roland Hayes, as well as the Philadelphia Orchestra under Leopold Stokowski and Eugene Normandy. And that brought me into collecting much further along, I'm going to say in the early 90s, I began to expand my interest in collecting and to document uh, not only the history of African American concert and opera singers through historical recordings and ephemera, but also my interest was in looking at, like Arthur Schumberg, the famous librarian and archivist who's our uh, collection is the foundation of the Schomburg Center for Research uh, on African-American Culture in New York City. I also wanted to document um, the history of African-American identity in not only music, but in particular in recorded sound. So that's how it came to be.
1: Oh, okay. So, you know, speaking of recorded sound, why don't you give us an idea of what we can expect tonight uh, from, from you?
2: Absolutely. My problem tonight will examine the suppressed history of the commercialization of race and race consciousness through the lens of sheet music and early recorded sound at the turn of the century. These will be coon songs and minstrel shows that were produced and put into wax by Victor and Columbia Records from about 1900 to 1915. These recordings are the commercialization of the experience of the vast American uh, in, interest uh, in minstrel shows and its songs and gets put into print and into wax. These, this commercialization defined for the larger American populace the experience of what it meant to be Negro or African American. And like the minstrel shows and their audiences, these recordings and their song sheets were commercially mass-produced for white audiences to showcase the newest, must have home decor item called the Victrola. The early Victrolas really were only affordable by the well to do and were often presented as desirable pieces of furniture. And so really what happens is when we look at what I'm doing tonight, our program, you know, I'm looking at the songs and recordings as, if you will, the colored museum. To quote the title of the play by George C. Wolfe from the nineteen eighties that explored African American identity in the United States. It's a multi hued and kaleidoscopic or I should say kaleidoscopic collection of portraits and impressions of African-American life that calls out to the visitor and to us listening to closely look at and listen to as if, to a, as if we are touring a museum of historic and famous paintings. One we'll wants to sit and ponder, if you will, uh, and look at the levels of such art or art of impressionism, which is, in fact, what the recordings are. So that's what we we're pointing to. Quite interesting.
1: Today. Yes, and so for for those that are listening, I want you to know that I will be playing several songs tonight, so that you can get a feel for uh, where um, Bill will be taking us to understand uh, minstrel music and minstrelsy. So, just to to get us where we need to be. Where did minstrelsy come from? I mean, help us with the origin because what you have listening are are genealogists and you have historians, and when we start thinking about putting our ancestors in the context of when this music and when this art form, if you want to call it, that is being produced, where did it all come from?
2: Absolutely, minstrelsy is actually a form of entertainment which is based on an amalgam of sources directly connected to newly arriving Irish male immigrants uh, in New York City in the early 1830s. That is the Irish immigrants who were dealing with the, the pre-1850 famine. That that so impacted Ireland where you saw a lot of immigration to the United States or out-migration from Ireland in the 1850s. Probably previous to that, in the 1820s, there was also a famine. And so you saw what happened basically is that minstrelsy became a form of entertainment that was an amalgam sourced out of Ireland where you had a number of Irish male immigrants who were themselves actors and street performers. Who fused an interesting fused if you will, two different traditions, their tradition, the Irish theatrical tradition of mocking British aristocracy, because of course Ireland at that time was was considered kind of the stepchild to England, and also fused it in their early experiences in the young Americas, especially for those who had traveled to the Ohio Valley, who ran into through the early phases of the Underground Railroad, uh, escaping slaves, where they fused and experienced each other's sense of entertainment, where Irishmen basically had the opportunity to be exposed to and fused into their own entertainment this mockery that Afri- that, that runaway or, or escaping Africans on the Underground Railroad had of mocking their white plantation owners. So it's a fusion. It's a it's a fusion, but it's a fusion that was unique and very special and, and original, if you will, in particular, in as much as that the concoction was something different, where, let's say, specifically you look at what they did. In fact, you look at what the, what the, the grandfather, the, the, the grandfather of all mystery, Thomas B. Rice did. What did he do? He took not only the Irish tradition of mocking English aristocracy, but he took from the general, uh, I'm going to say, United Kingdom or, or, or British theatrical tradition, the Shakespearean tradition, this idea of the mask. And the mask in this particular case, as he used it and envisioned it, was the use and the donning of burnt cork or blackface on his Face and the uh, exaggeration of the clothing, tattered clothing, and the infusing of two sources of mockery the mockery of his own experience in Ireland of the uh, British aristocracy and the mocking of African, of African, of whites, uh, slave owners, but created this, this concoction that was a new entertainment that would essentially, hopefully, um, allow him to make a living and, and, and his fears to make a living In early 1830s Lower Bowery, New York While it was such a sensation That it became the um, Bigger than life, if you will And not only Thomas D. Rice But other um, Minstrelsy acts such as The Christie Minstrels in the 1840s And early 1850s Followed suit And and lo and behold before you knew it, it was this concoction of an entertainment, a fantasy That this fantastical impressionism that was an entertainment intended only to be an entertainment, if you will. I call it a 1980s, an 1830s version of Saturday Night Live. It was never intended to be what it became. And what minstrelsy became by by 1850 was a statement and a documentation of who, what, and how one that is African or African-American, how they are, what they're about, what their soul and their whole energy and persona is all about. That is where minstrelsy came from, and and, and tragically, that is what minstrelsy became uh, by uh, eighteen fifty 1850,
1: eighteen fifty two. Wow! So when you talk about it, it kind of evolved from the mockery, and then it became uh, almost a defining uh, behavior pattern that they kind of looked at. African Americans and say, oh, this is the way they behave, and then made that part of the entertainment. Uh, What happened after the Civil War that you said it changed and it really took on a whole new persona?
2: Right, it did. But before we go there, let me actually add two important pieces here. And those important pieces are that Thomas B. Rice, in addition, and as Chris Mitchell in addition to um, simply creating this larger than life and financially successful entertainment that defined the race and the people, they bundled into that comedic skit, that Saturday Night Live. Uh, entertainment from the 1830s were two caricatures of what an African American male, essentially not female, but the male was and that was Jim Crow and Zip Coon. Jim Crow is the low-life um, um, happy-go-lucky poor, naive but yet conniving African you know, slave. And then Zip Coon is essentially this free black this this, if you will, I'm going to say uh, Solomon Northrop out of uh, 12 Years of Slave. You know, this free black who plays the violin, who's sophisticated, who sings white, but yet in the caricaturization in the minstrel shows, or oh, the antebellum minstrel shows, and I use antebellum, I mean, I'm sure the listeners understand what I'm doing here. Antebellum refers to uh, before Civil War and uh and, of course, postbellum is, is after Civil War. So the antebellum experience and the concretization of what African-American, what an African or person of color, of black color, was all about became divided uh, comedically, if you will, into these mm-hmm. two paradigms, the, the, the Jim Crow, you know, this, this low life. And then the Zipcoon, this kind of uh, what, what do we call it today or what has been called, what what have we adopted, what's been adopted, what's been told to us, you know, putting on airs or acting white, like, you know, that's mm-hmm. the zip coon. Mm-hmm. But the way mm-hmm. that these caricatures were used politically, they became symbols for Zip Koon was considered actually a free black and a improved a, a an actual this is what an Af- this is what a real African is like. So abolitionists embrace the Zip Kuhn image, or as pro slavery politicians and, and 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 advocates embrace the Jim Crow. So there was this there was this debating and this this, this, this confluence of this contradiction. Of images and understandings of what black actually was, but both of them are are are, are a fantasy. Either are fantastical. Neither yes. are real. Then I think that's right. really. Right, and we the have TCC. a comment
1: coming from the, a comment coming from the chat room that the mockery of African culture and African people became an American tradition in the nation's entertainment, and that would exactly. explain the careers of Al Jolson.
2: Of course well that, we, that, that's something way ahead, yes, absolutely, but going back to your original question about so how did it affect what how did it change in the civil war? how did the civil war simply? the, simply, the civil war yes, is about slavery and it's about economics and uh, the free labor of africans was is at the source of the economic livelihood of white planners and of the whole Mm, economy of the South. So for a very progressive, socially progressive man, uh, a president called by the name of Abraham Lincoln, to have the notion of freeing and dismantling this architecture um, was certainly utopian, but certainly obviously was not meant to be. And it was. It took one of those persons from the South, a Confederate sympathizer by the name of, uh, of John Wilkes Booth, to assassinate uh, the progressive, social progressive Lincoln, as the person whom Frederick Douglass and um, uh, Harriet Tubman and so many others had pinned their hopes on for this freedom, that that freedom was whittled away by the ascendancy after the assassination of president Lincoln and the assassination of president Lincoln is fundamental, critical, foundational to everything that happens in terms of the whole African experience, African-American experience going forward. And so who, what, what happens essentially, you have the ascendancy of Andrew Johnson, who's under, uh, President president Lincoln in his second election in 1864, Andrew Johnson is a southerner. Andrew Johnson is also a Confederate sympathizer. Andrew Johnson has no intention of carrying through with the Emancipation Proclamation and all of these other, you know, ideas. He does some of it in, you know, basically gives lip service to it. Certainly Reconstruction happens. Certainly the Freedman's Girl happens. But how does that affect the music and the songs? Well, the songs that were... The the songs of the minstrelsy, the experience of the minstrel show before the Civil War became much darker uh, after the Civil War, in particular it became much darker by, I want to say, the 1870s with the um, very important, critical landmark, the contested election of 1876, where the Republican Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes um, and, and the Democrat, Samuel uh, Tilden, had such a razor-thin election in terms of the popular vote, it was decided in the Electoral College. How that relates to the music is that the white Southerners who had been, a real, I want to say, this um, reconciliation of the former Confederate states and all the white Southern John Teal. Friends of the current president, Andrew Johnson, this reconciliation allowed for there to be, if you will, a desire to not implement the the fully implement Reconstruction or the Freedmen's Bureau, and so Rutherford B. Hayes was able to cut a deal with the Electoral College that if he agreed to end Reconstruction, to fit to to end the Freedmen's Bureau and to withdraw federal troops the south would allow him to rise to the presidency. This had a huge impact on the music because that meant, because the political reality meant that we do not accept the outcome of the civil war. We do not accept
3: this,
2: this idea, this socially progressive idea that these now, uh, you know, that our property is, you know, that's now free, has human dignity. So we are going to make sure that the songs that oh, are popular and the she shows that, that uh, become larger than life showcase a darker, more insidious Kind of song and lyrics So, so the minstrel shows that, uh, that were pre-Civil War Became the darker show, Minstrel shows hugely Popular, the economic being of, of American popular culture after, Especially after the uh, Election of 1876 And at the center Of all of those minstrel shows were the Kun songs, the Kun songs were the extreme um, Mockery Of African American Of African features of of any kinds of habits or folkways that could be uh, associated with African uh, American, with slaves or or former slaves. If it was basically the Kuhn song and the experience of the she show, in the period of 1876 through the early teens, was a aggressive attempt to reenslave former free people by creating such a visceral and overwhelmingly negative experience of who they were and the fact that these shows were so popular and these were the only shows that were being booked and that were selling out that this had a huge if you if you will, this uh, will impact on the popular psyche during this time.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it is so, a, it is it's pretty intense. It, it's very intense because well, we don't it, normally it, it, look look at this.
1: Right, we we really don't look at this, and and here we have uh, the the emancipation. We have had we've had the civil war. We're now in Reconstruction, and boom, we're heading into, you know, the whole Jim Crow era, and people are saying, no, you're not going to change. We want you to be like this. And so that image, as you said, is selling out at the theaters, and people are going there, and they're seeing the images of, of African Americans in the way that, as you said, it's become even darker And, uh, you know, with that, I want to take a quick break, come back, because I want you to say just a little bit about the Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus um, Ferguson, and its impact on Jim Crow and how that relates to the recording. So just a very quick break. We're going to come back because I do want you to get into at least sharing some of the uh, music with the uh, listening audience. So quick break. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Bill Doggett speak on race, Music and message at the dawn of recorded music. Now, Bill, we have several comments coming from the the, uh, chat room. One is that the stereotypes from 100-plus years ago are still pervasive in our culture today. And then another is that the rejection of the outcome of the Civil War also explains the rejection of extreme right conservatives and their rejection of voter rights and gains in the 1960s. So you're just bringing up, you know, you're bringing up a whole lot of information, uh, yes. uh, you know, but we, we have these songs. Those songs have been out there. We've seen minstrel shows on television. And so right. just take us to. Uh, just the whole Plessy versus uh, Ferguson and its impact on Jim Crow and how it relates to recordings.
2: Really, Sure, that's fine. First, about the questions. Yes, I agree with both of them. Yes, I'll, and there is so much. Uh, so much that is today that relates to what we're talking about. So Plessy versus Ferguson is the 1896 Supreme court decision uh, that deals with Homer Plessy versus Ferguson and Mr. Ferguson. Uh, so Miss Homer Plessy is a, bi- is basically a mulatto, uh, a Creole African American who has decided like, if you will, Rosa Parks many years later, that he's not going to sit in a Jim Crow, um, railroad car Jim, Jim Crow was already In place, if you will, where the Black codes, where blacks could Sit, where blacks could walk, How late a black person could be Seen out, you know, on what side Of town, all of that was in place as a Result of the election of 1876 So that needs to be set first off So the more famous Plessy Burgess versus Ferguson Supreme Court case all Has everything to do about this case Of Of a dignified, uh, obviously free, because we are free in in the 1890s, free African American who is demanding human dignity and human rights. But unfortunately, the political and social cultural climate that has been allowed to exist or has been uplifted, if you will, and that's very important that I emphasize that this political, social political culture of the South Of, if you will, the antebellum South The South before the Civil War The election of 1876 That it permits the return of the South uh, before the Civil War That this culture uh, creates this, this nightmare for you know, uh, um, upstanding African Americans who want to be respected and have the dignity to, to, to have, you know, fair and equal accommodations. Well, obviously this went up to Supreme court and the Supreme court decision in, in Plessy versus Ferguson um, enacts and concretizes separate but equal or what we call today, Jim Crow. How does that impact the recordings and the sheet music and the songs? Here's one from the same period by the very prolific African-American songwriters and, and Black Bodillions, Bob Cole, Robert Cole, and Billy Johnson. It's called Mr. Coon. You're Alright in Your Place. That speaks directly to this whole Ferguson, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and Jim Crow, separate but equal. So long as you're in your place, you're okay. So it is mm-hmm. that's a song that became recorded. So directly impacted the concept, the kinds of songs that were were being talked about. Here is another song that I had. This is going to be, this will definitely light up the board. From 1898. Understand, Leslie versus Ferguson is 1896. This is a song from a uh, easily purchased small songbook that I have, a really rare piece. This is a song written by Arthur L. Lamb, not an African-American person, and the music is by Bernard Adler, yet again, not an, an African-American person, published by Windsor Music Company. What's the song title? Rebecca's Left Home with a Coon. We're talking about darkness uh, of the lyrics. The Hebrew, I'm going to read this, and it'll stun you. The Hebrew, and I'm going to read it in a way I'll, I'll act it out. The Hebrew population in a state of agitation because Rebecca's left her home with a coon. They don't know which which begun it, but now she's begun and done it. Oh, Rebecca's left her home with a coon. The Yehudas in the block have suffered such a shock. They're going out of business pretty soon because every nigga store has three balls right over the door since Rebecca left her home with a coon. And it goes on and on and on. The next one is uh, from 1899. Uh, Written by the Zickel Brothers Of Detroit uh, Excuse me The words and music are by John Martin But it was copyrighted in 1899 By the Zickel Brothers And this is very common Um, And I won't go there But I'll just say By the Zickel Brothers of Detroit, Michigan Or by Joseph Stern and Company of New York City Here's the song I Don't Love You No More There's a chocolate colored lady Who's the swellest gal in town And I've had a sort of notion She was mine she's accepted my attentions and had nothing but a frown for the other colored gentry down the line i have used her i have used her like a lady and i've spent my money free everything i ever had was like her own i always thought she'd love me till one night she said to me after this, I'm going to run this flat alone. I don't of I don't love you no more, nigga, because you ain't been no good to me. I've considered your case for a long time, mister, and I find that we can't agree. Here's your bundle packed up and ready for you. Please don't block the door. Don't stand the talking, but just start off for walking, for I don't love you no more. That's the kind of impact that Plessy versus Ferguson and the election of 1876 had typical of songs you could purchase, as well as get in the newspaper for free, as well as experience, uh, of course, in even greater detail and darkness with with theatrical makeup, burnt cork, with with all kinds of sets and and all kinds of buffoonery on stage live. Well, how does this relate to the music and the recordings? the recording at the dawn of recorded sound and I'm speaking specifically with the Edison cylinders because the cylinder is the first format of recorded sound and they're coming in basically around 1888, 1889, 90. The cylinders and then the flat discs, which I think is what we're more uh, familiar with, you know, the, the, the early Caruso looking types of records. Well, the early flat discs, particularly the Columbia records and the Victor records from 1902, 3, four, all put into wax these songs for consumption, for mass production, uh, and for a purchase with your brand new, the newest entertainment. You know the 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 the, the iPod. Or, or the, uh, yeah, the iPod or iPad of its era, which was the Victrola. And these Victrolas were, you know, expensive as all can be. They were never, you know, the African-American, you know, free blacks at that time in the 1890s, early 1990s, they most of them, you know, unless they are well-to-do, you know, living, you know, in the Boston area, most of them didn't have those kinds of houses and certainly didn't have those kinds of resources to buy these expensive furniture uh Furniture-like machines. So that's the impact of, of, of uh, Plessy versus wow. Ferguson.
1: Right, and you know, I'm I'm seeing some of the comments in here because, I mean, there's one comment. So people were listening to this in their homes and teaching their children these lyrics. You know, yes. yet this is music. I mean, it was mass produced, and of course, those that had the money could buy the Victrolas and listen to this. Um. Wow. You know, there's another. They normalized hatred because it had a catchy tune um, to it. Which
2: absolutely segues beautifully and perfectly to our first recording, which is the Christy Minstrels uh, from about – this is a Victor recording, an early one from about 1906, which is a classic. And this is why we're beginning with this one. It's a classic minstrel show uh, skit. Uh, obviously, the first recordings were only like two minutes, maybe a minute and a half to two and a half minutes. So we're going to listen to the entire one. These are, please, listenership of my audience. What's amazing about this recording? These are not African Americans uh, that you're listening. These are all white men, uh, as is typical, of course, and, and I should emphasize that. Of course, that's typical of the minstrel show. They were all white men, donning burnt corp or blackface, and and taking on this identity, this assumed, uh, if you will, imitation of life, identity of an African-American person. And you'll hear that in the voicing. So okay, let's take a listen. This is Chris Okay. De
1: uh, this is Chris Minstrels, And please listen very closely, and I hope that the sound is at, at a level that you all can hear it. So this is the first one. Uh-huh.
3: We have all the fun of the friendly rivalry of politics right, hooray! We have to pick it up a lot to dress done with the money that we spent for politics right. Hey! Hey! Gentlemen, be seated. Uh-huh. Well, Billy, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm feeling fine. How you feel, Mr. Dudley? I'm not feeling very well, Billy. I've got a bad cold in my head. Lord sake, you're lucky to have something in it. I always thought it was empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's all the rest of your folks, Mr. Dudley? They're all quite well, Billy. How's your brother, Henry? Henry? Why, Henry's away for three years. Is that all? I certainly thought he'd get ten. Now, my brother is not in jail. I want you to understand that he's a very smart fellow. You bet he is. I never thought they'd catch him. Here, now, that'll do. Never mind my brother Henry. Oh, I don't have to mind him. There's men paid for minding him. (laughs) Well, Mr. Collins, what are you laughing at? Why, I was just laughing about your brother Henry. Now, look here. Answer me this question. Were you ever in jail? I must say that I was in jail once. Well, I'd be ashamed to own it. Oh, I didn't own it. I was just simply a boarder. <laughs> My kick a bull queen by Mr. Collins. <laughs> Big fingabo bungalow. Came here to be a slave gang hide by a white Yankee crew Lord, how that man did rave Find by all the yellow inside spider in his hands Why he would not marry, they could never understand Big deep, noble birth Didn't want to marry every gal on earth But at last he yelled, relax and in a, kick of a In a castle grand Full the poly is green i won her hand Keep it tripping your feet will all understand He's a kicker full of me
2: The Minstrel Show as a classic um, uh, snippet of what one would experience uh, in the actual theater, brought into your living room.
1: Yes, it was brought into the living room. But and many of them all
2: across the country.
1: Right. So how did the, the black community and the black entertainers um, confront minstrelsy?
2: Tragically, they had to confront it by accepting it. And that is a great, great tragedy. But unfortunately, at the time, during this time, specifically 1880 to 1913, minstrelsy was the economic behemoth of American popular culture. It was the undeniable, unstoppable most popular form of entertainment it was the only kind of show essentially with the exception of perhaps other ethnic humor shows but in particular but Sea was the the runaway hit that every theatrical venue and every booking agent sought to find a, a better and better act to bring in more and more people and to sell out more and more shows so there were black actors, um, black uh, actors such as Ernest Hogan, Bob Cole, and J. Rossman Johnson. And you may recognize Rossman Johnson. J. Rossman Johnson is, uh, uh, the, I believe, younger brother of James Weldon Johnson, who uh, wrote uh, the uh, Negro National Anthem. There was also, of course, Burt Williams and his partner, George Walker. There was also uh, the women were involved, of course, the most famous of being uh, a very uh, wonderful singer famous for her operatic style singing, Cicerita Jones. There was also a very, there were also uh, two really important songwriters, Will Marion Cook and Bob Cole. So they were involved and very active. In fact, some of their In fact, in particular, Bob Cole, Robert Cole, whose years are 1868 to 1911. Bob Cole's music is perhaps the first and most significant uh, in terms of being actually mass produced in the sheet music and being heralded by white uh, performers. In fact, uh, a a group we're going to listen to next, the name of which is a white Basel team by the name of Collins and Harlan, Collins and Harlan actually recorded the songs of Bob Cole and Jay Rossman Johnson from their very popular shows and particularly from the Shoe Fly Regiment from nineteen oh seven. Uh and another one from I believe nineteen oh two under the um let's see, I think it's called under the bamboo tree. Uh it was a huge hit uh for the white uh, singer and comedian Marie Cahill. Collins and Harlan, um, did something even further, but these guys, you know, getting back to the, the source of what we're talking about, the black actors not only had to confront it, they had to outdo it, and this was the huge mm-hmm. tragedy. It, they didn't just have to put on uh, burnt cork and 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 clown and become clowning. It became uh, visually difficult for many of them because they had to they had to be even better at it. They had to be more extreme. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is, all of, this is fantastical. This is not who they are. This is not who they come This is not the people they're from. But this is what they had to do in order to survive financially. Yes. That is a great tragedy, um, but this is what their experience was on the whole. In fact, Bob Cole committed suicide in 1911. There are various different uh, understandings of really what happened. But a series of, of the key uh players, Ernest Hogan, who's the earliest, uh eighteen sixty five to nineteen oh nine, he dies in nineteen oh nine. Bob Cole commits suicide in nineteen eleven, um, George Walker, who's the critical um counterpart to Bert Williams, before Bert Williams becomes, you know, uniquely on his own famous. He dies in nineteen eleven too. I think he dies of of uh, of an illness, but uh there has been this undercurrent of the psychological impact of this derogatory, this visceral experience of having to be this extreme imitation that certainly Mm -hmm. impacted the whole cast of African-American players involved with this, this form of entertainment.
1: Right, right. So we're going to the next song.
2: We surely are. And the next song is, uh, but I want to go back to something. I want to okay. point something out uh, t- about Christy Menstrels. Did, I'm, I'm hopeful that my listeners picked out something. You heard one of the actors talk about, well, you know, your brother Henry, well, he's in jail or he's away for three years. Oh, I didn't know he I thought he, he, didn't, he only got three years. I thought he sure, he gets in. Already in 1906, we're talking about incarceration. You know the new Jim Crow of Michelle Alexander. We're already talking about incarceration as a comedy fit that black men mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. already, or are histor- not historically, but are are put into wax as already being criminal. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting thing I just want to point out. And then the, the image of dark, the dark continent, um, the song, the Kickaboo Queen is about uh, in Zooland. You know, it's just this this kind of cute I mean, you you wouldn't want to see this live Because in, you know, in 1906 It would be this extremism But I just wanted to point out those two things We're going on to Collins and Harlan's uh, 1910 recording for Victor Records Called Mo- uh, Moonlight and Jungle Land We're only listening to an excerpt of it But one of the things I wanted to call out to the listeners Is as it begins Listen for something that is said He's talking about something up in a tree. What is it what is the word he uses for that something up in that tree? And Coles and Harlem, by the way, these are two men, but their act is they they become a they imitate a man and a woman. And so it's a duet thing. It is a baritone and a tenor. The tenor is the woman and the uh, baritone is the man. So it's interesting in that. But take a listen early on to what is he saying that's up in that tree in the jungle land, in the moonlight in jungle land.
1: Okay, here we go.
3: Oh my, what is that? why that and a monkey and his sweetheart up in that tree is so is that so? Why did he think of her? Oh, he says, "Does you love me? (laughs) Well, what did she say? Why, she says, I'm not prepared to answer. (laughs) They're talking again. What did he say then? (laughs) Why, he says, will you marry me? Uh (laughs) Well, did she say yes? No, she said, you had to ask my papa some (laughs) things. Oh, my goodness, (laughs) what? Why, that was her papa. And that's her papa? What's the matter? Am he mad? No, 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 no. He was only just giving them his blessing. Well, I do hope he'll overlook us. <laughs> I hope so, too, gal. No light in jungle land. No light and love. In the jungle place, it won't be made. If somebody's
2: And that one, of course, you heard that. What's up in that tree? A monkey in that tree? A coon in that tree. Um, Already we've had the darkening. Uh, I mean, this is post uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. This is a a recording from 1910. The song is likely around 1908. We have this degradation of of Africa uh, and of Africans and African-Americans as being, you know, from the jungle. So, to speak. so this is so if you listen to the music, the sheet music put into um, the studio, into the recording studio and then put on wax and then brought into the home. And you look at the politics, the political environment of African-Americans at the turn of the century. You, you no know, wonder. I mean, if you look at this recording, but particular in the next one, which is from 1905 and, and, and was basically uh, debuted in 1906. If you look at the fact that the Niagara Movement, in which W.E. Du Bois is involved in trying to uplift the race in Upper New York mm-hmm. is in 1905, and you look at the, the 1909 movement called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, in the background you have all of this going on. And I think that's right. really amazing and really challenging and problematic. And then, of course, you have between W.E. Du Bois you have this more accommodationist ideology and worldview of of Booker T. Washington, which has, of course, on another level, politically, of course, works well with this music and the worldview uh, position in this music. In our next one, and let's turn the volume down because I think we're, we're, we're distorting a little bit. Uh, We can maybe do half the volume up is probably our center, our centerpiece. The next, one of the, the next song, another Collins and Harlan recording, a Victor recording, uh, recorded in December 1905, but uh, mostly I, 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 um, identified as a 1906 recording, is was I should say uh, one of Victor's most important sellers. This was, if you will, not just a gold record for 1906, but perhaps a platinum record. Hugely popular. It's called, and I'm not worried here. I think our audience can handle this. The title is Nigger Loves Possum. Nigger Loves His Possum. This idea of taking, we've gone beyond just the watermelon and the fried chicken. But somehow by 1905, and you're seeing this in a lot of the songs and the recordings between 1901, the sheet music between 1901 and 1905, Possum is coming up quite a bit. So what is unique and uniquely difficult for African Americans then and today with this particular recording is the song itself, of course, but the melody and the realization What's going on? What do I mean? This song, when I listened to it at, uh, at first, I, I got what most people get, but then I listened to it again. And I listened to the cute sound effects and the cute melody, and it's got some kind of raggy melody. I thought to myself, you know, I imagined myself, I put myself in one of these well-to-do homes in 1905, you know, some well-to-do um, banker or, uh, real estate person or doctor, you know, and Christmas, and you know, I have a brand new Victrola. The, the kind of classic ones we we think of, you know, with the huge horns. I and mean, these were expensive pieces of equipment for entertainment. And this song is really almost a children's song. It's very cute. It's very catchy, but it's got several. It's got a lot in it that we'll go through after you listen to. It. We're going to listen to this twice, um, at least at least well, once and a half, because I want to talk about it. Uh, the words and the lyrics on the second go or after the after you hear it the first time. So we begin now with Peter Loves His
1: Okay, and before I I even t- uh, put that one on, I mean there's there's some feelings being expressed about how difficult Please. it is to to listen to this music and to to recognize that our ancestors were just i mean humiliated with with this type of music being played in the homes and recognizing that these are the same people that they worked for they you know they bought food yes. from them they cooked in their homes but this was the yes. music that was being played in those very homes so i'll put this on now and hopefully the sound won't be so distorted
2: right just have fun
3: That the steamboat rumbling, rumbling along, crashing and the train is muffled in the
2: For Victor Records uh, Perhaps not even just a gold record Perhaps a platinum record for Victor Records Hard to believe um, But that actually Is also typical Of a classic song from a menstrual show And of course n- Not written or to be Consumed by, by blacks Going to, out on the town But for the the mass for, for the mass population that enjoyed menstrual shows and thought that this was a big hook, I want to talk about the lyrics a little bit. Of course, we know the title is What It Is. But as you're listening to this, and, and I attempted, by the way, for the listeners to actually download uh, off of Google uh, the lyrics, but they never showed up. But I, so in, in, in the absence of that, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the lyrics. So. So part. Of, so it's interesting. So I'm just going to talk a couple of things. So thinking about a nigger must be something wrong is part of the opening. But it, then it talks about the issue of nigger loves the corn, his corn juice. He'll steal it if he can. And then the other thing um, about the corn juice that goes on in another verse, talking about corn juice and his possum, that means he's a nigger through and through. And then the issue that really, I think, is really amazing, um, and I don't think you hear it, but uh, this is part of the digitization process, which I will be involved with uh, coming up in the future with my collection, and I actually need to write a grant for the digitization of this collection. Um, you listen to this, and snuck into the lyrics is something hear the nigger howl when he opens the, opens the, the furnace. But then I distinctly hear, and I keep listening to this again to verify this. I hear this almost Hansel and Gretel kind of thing out of you know. I mean, most of us are familiar with Hansel and Gretel. You know, this the witch putting the kids in the oven. I hear this this actual. The one of the the baritone is saying, "Shut the nigger in the oven," which is impossible to believe. Oh my indeed. goodness! But it's but it's but it's it's in there. I'm I've heard it multiple times, and I'm like, okay, this is really. I don't think anyone really listened, hopefully, to this the way I'm hearing it, but I wanted to call it out because I think it's important that we understand that this was a very popular record, uh, a popular-selling record. It is musically, it's cute and catchy, and it's certainly something that kids could, you know, dance around to um, and probably not realize what was being said, but yet that was what was being said. This is 1906. The Niagara movement is 1905. The NWCP first meetings and the, 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 the launch of the National Association for the Advancement of the Colored People is 1909. No wonder we were having so much trouble. No wonder, I mean you have this kind of thing going on uh, musically, culturally, uh, certainly made it difficult for African American sharecroppers in the south. Um, to have a sense of dignity If southern planters Who they were working for You know Had this recording or listened to this, this And other recordings that were being Mass produced and And tragically I guess One would have to say you know, I'd have to you know um, Not to be devil's advocate but tragically I think That Columbia Victor Edison The political climate Of the era how the political climate and the economic need or the economic uh, uh, value, meaning that these, this new entertainment device, the recording, and the machines that went with recording, that that outweighed an understanding and appreciation of the impact or the potential impact on a whole race of people. Of this kind of music They weren't going there They didn't think about that That wasn't something on their consciousness Of course that's on our consciousness today It was certainly on the consciousness of, of African Americans uh, But certainly unfortunately in the larger white population it wasn't And that leads us to 1915 uh, Which is also the date of the next recording Just from Georgia 1915 is very very significant in our conversation tonight Because 1915 represents The most important, uh, if you will, uh, concretization of the negativity of being African American in the new 20th century by the dawning of the most important film and early film, which is D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation was considered... uh, history written with lightning by the newly minted United States President Woodrow Wilson, who felt that this was this revisionist history of the Civil War, which was a a glorification of the Ku Klux Klan, was the right thing. And, of course, African Americans at the time, especially in the NAACP at the time, rejected that. And there were many protests. But this was the birth of the nation in 1915 was the, I would say, the Star Wars of its time. And, of course, made it even worse. So let's listen to the next record because it relates to this idea. Uh, It's also 1915. It relates to this idea of race. And the con- and the popular consciousness of race in an, even a darker way. This is a this is called a darky story, and we're listening to the first one called Jeff Number One. So let's listen to that and and at the same volume, and I think we'll be fine. And I will annotate afterwards on this.
1: Okay, are we listening to the entire uh, no, we're song or just, or to, just pieces just of it? To half, uh, just
2: to the first half. Just to the first Jeff. This should be the first half. Okay. There are two jets, so this will this be just a one. This old is full
0: of funny things if you only look for them. Here are two little jets from Georgia. Some time ago, they were hanging a colored fellow legally in a small Georgia county seat. It was a public hanging. They had the black cap on his head and the noose around his neck when the fire bells in the town rang. The old sheriff says, Why, Mr. Fire in this town since the town started. Gosh, deputy, I can't miss this fire. The deputy said, Why, sheriff, this nigger's all tied up here. He can't go to He'll be here when we get back. All right, said the sheriff. Let's go to the fire, boys. And away they went to the fire. While they were gone, another darky came along, looked at the darky standing on the scaffold, and he says, What you all doing standing up on platform that way? The darky said... I'm opposing for moving pictures. Mm-hmm. Does he like it, job? He said, I order or get $10 an hour for it. $10 an hour? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. John John. He says, yes, but I get tired standing around this way. Get tired of getting $10 an hour. Will you all trade with me? Trade, business with you. I should say I would. Come on up. The other darky went up onto the scaffold, and they traded places. And the first darky seated. In due course of time, the fire over, the sheriff and the deputy and the boys returned. Got on the scaffold, the sheriff said, Phew,
3: Well, boy, she was
0: a hot fire. But we put her out, hey? Well, Debbie, said he, is he all ready? Yep. Let her go, Jim. And the drop dropped, and the darky dropped. But the rope broke. And as the doctor struck the ground, he got up and said, Here, yeah, look here, white folks. You all come messing around here taking these moving pictures, and the first thing you know, some niggas not want to get hurt. The other day in a little country dock in it. Old Georgia, that's the
3: minister was preaching away like a good... That
2: is it. Yes, that's the first jest. That's an amazing piece. I mean, an amazing piece for the storytelling and for what is being said. Here you have a public hanging of a colored person um, that is made into a cute little skit about the darky being uh, hung up. And he's supposedly posing for moving pictures. That's what they called film back in the early days, moving pictures. And he's being paid $10 an hour. And another darky comes up and says, why are you standing up there like that? Making fun of it like it's—he's not aware of what's actually happening, you know. So it's, isn't I mean, you know, we know what's happening, but it's interesting right. as we re interpret this this recording and this little story. So the guy says, "You get," but I'm getting tired of standing up here this way, you know. Uh, but and and the other one says, "The other doctor says, you getting tired of being paid ten dollars an hour?'" Well, hey, you know, I want to trade places with you. And then the firemen come back, or the, the people who are publicly, you know, assembled for this lynching, <laughs> I'm not laughing, actually, for this lynching, they proceed to have the lynching, they drop the, the, the you know, they drop this, the scaffold and the rope rope. And so the dark comes up, to, you know, the guy was supposed to be lynching, and they make it uh, to a funny thing. We'll you know, you all, you all white people better be better Be careful. How are you doing this thing? If, you know, somebody like to like to get hurt. That's right. supposed to be funny. That was supposed to be funny in 1915. Uh, obviously, um, that's really interest. That's really serious that, you know, that you have a skit that was considered so worthwhile to document that this was pressed in wax and also mass produced. I have several copies of this recording. I wonder how many other people, you know, when this came out, you know, had this recording. So it's, Really interesting and it's really challenging, but I think, but the whole, and I would say to not only you, Bernice, but also to our listening audience the purpose of talking about this, to having a, a And an unveiling and an unearthing of this suppressed material is to look at how far not only we've come, but how far we haven't and where some of all of our drama that we're not our drama, but the drama that's been put upon us, if you will, has come from and how that came to pass in the early uh, part of of the 20th century. No one knew. Or no one anticipated that the power of these new media, the new media being recordings or, you know, recorded sound, as well as the film media, moving pictures, that both moving pictures and recorded sound would have this potential to influence both positively and negatively.
1: hmm Mm-hmm. Well, I want to take us to a, another place before we end the show tonight. And just so we can maybe have a balance in our discussion. Yes. So let's talk about the, the Negro spirituals as Absolutely. a contrast to the minstrel shows and the coon songs because, we, you know, we we also know that that was another art form of entertainment, and also a, a, a way of expression. So tell us about the, the Negro
2: spirituals. Absolutely. The Negro spirituals are, are, of course, songs of the spirit. They are actually songs of our ancestors uh, that were sourced not only out of the plantation experience, but also sourced from the work songs and the songs of contemplation from the west coast of Africa. Songs that essentially brought with us through the Middle Passage and became reconfigured into songs, work songs, and songs of contemplation on on in the in the in the New World, in in the American uh, plantations, as well as in the rice fields, sugar fields in, in Cuba and Brazil and, and other elsewhere. Negro spirituals um, are important to talk about because of the fact that they offer They offered to us an important foundational contract. Also, Negro Spirituals um, were first published uh, 150 years ago, next year, in 1867. uh, Abolitionists from the North came down to the Philadelphia area um, to interview free blacks as well as blacks who were coming through the Pennsylvania anti-slavery um, organization through, again, connected to the underground railroad to talk about their experience on the plantations and the oral history and oral singing traditions. And these abolitionists from the North put on to, they notated onto paper, these songs, which they published in 1867 called slave songs of America, but they were actually, what we call them today Negro spirituals The Negro spirituals. At because, uh, because 1867 is reconstruction And is also at the dawn Of the Freedmen's Bureau And the Freedmen's Bureau's establish, Establishment of, of the Historically black colleges Like the Fisk University These the slave songs Or Negro spirituals Are the foundation from which These young brand new this Jubilee singers Worked with and then made famous Going These songs were basically saw, existed side by side with the minstrelsy Coon songs, but they were never they never had the kind of financial popularity um, that was clear from all of the ticket sales from the minstrel shows that necessitated and and perhaps um, provided the impetus for why early recordings focused. Almost exclusively on that material Instead of on the spirituals But fortunately, Mm -hmm. by 1909 The Fish Jubilee Singers Quartet Began to record some of these songs They were preceded by an earlier um, singing quartet Called the Whittle Color Quartet Who recorded uh, Negro Spirituals Earlier, let's say, in the period of 1902 to 1905, but they were a short-lived uh, uh, ensemble. But the Fitzgerald Jubilee Singers, of course, as we all know, historically has existed from over the decades. So let's listen to the first, a very, this was a, a section of a recording. This is the very first recording of the Fitzgerald Jubilee Singers for Victor Records. It's from 1909. And what a contrast to what we've been listening to.
3: I'm the
2: An iconic uh, spiritual One of the first uh, There are two spirituals on this one or On this one particular side But that one we start with I would like to continue with A later recording From 1928 Which uh, speaks to The same idea Of spirituality um, But in a way That comes across even more so As authentic African American Experience in voicing and song and in culture It's recorded It uh, was recorded in Long Island, New York For the QRS label A very short-lived uh, record label um, And was and is the, the song we're going to listen to is actually spiritual It's called I Heard My Mother Call My Name in Prayer It's performed by the South Carolina Quartet Which was, I believe, based out of Charleston Let's listen Okay. Critically derogatory, but it's what was viewed as normative, tragically. But fortunately, if I can use, as I always do when I talk about uh, transformation and transfiguration, is I, I quote Maya Angelou and I say, and still I rise, and still we rise.
1: Right, and still we rise. And, you know, one of the things when, and I've spoken to some of my genealogy friends, and they say, you know, you do safe genealogy. Sometimes we dig into things that are very painful. And listening to the Coon songs, the minstrel singers, it was painful just to listen and then to come to the realization that our ancestors were exposed to this. This was, this was considered a norm, which was very unfortunate, but, you know, to to make fun of a, of a race of people uh, and to put it in music and for it to become a bestseller is uh, something that perhaps many of us are not even aware of. And so I'm glad that you brought this information to us So that we could understand, you know, everything that was going on, but also to share with us the contrast so that we could at least end end on a note of saying, yes, we rise. And so for that, Bill, I want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us tonight. And for the listeners and the people who participated in the chat, thank you so very much for Uh, participating and sharing your thoughts as Bill uh, went through this uh, information with us. And, Bill, we will see more about uh, this collection, Race, Music, and Message at the Dawn of Recorded Sound. Uh, Is it going to come out in in, in 2017, or when will we hear more about this?
2: Sure. Well, the first thing, thank you, uh, Bernice. First, let me back up and thank you for the opportunity of being on the show. And and listeners, please understand that the importance of this, the takeaway from this is to understand that there is value, even as painful as it is, in the embrace and the understanding of the negativity because if we do not understand from whence we've come and what we've had to go through, We don't. We we tend to not know and understand the full range of our history and how far we've come through. We certainly are impacted by all of this. But to go forward into talking about the question that Bernice has asked, yes, the Library of Congress Sound Division is in the process of putting together, uh, editing, and and otherwise the very large. Uh, written text with a major amount of images from my own archive of historic recordings as well as historical ephemera and sheet music. Uh, I think this was supposed to originally, my contract was for maybe mm, 5 to 7 or maybe 10,000 words. They got they got way over that, which is fine fine by that. Um, but also the film that I did this time last year, actually almost this time last year, I flew to um, D.C., um, and uh, uh, was filmed uh, in a larger um, lecture presentation uh, at the Culpeper Virginia campus, of the sound, which is where the sound and the film division is. So that should be coming out in 2017, especially because of the fact that the new Librarian of Congress that was uh, nominated at by President Obama and confirmed recently by the Senate, is, the, is Dr. Carla Hayden, the first African-American female at the Library of Congress. And she's coming from the Pratt, uh, the Baltimore Pratt Library system, and is well regarded for all that she has done around the community outreach and, and looking at the issues of, of race and how that affects, uh, you know, and, and the availability of readings on race and, and black identity. So I think that's important. But the important thing I absolutely have to leave uh, your listeners with is with my website, uh, where you can come and view various videos that are. Uh, and samples of, uh, of what I've already been talking about, and I've already lectured on in other um, venues and situations. And my website is com. So the www, and then Bill Doggett, and that's spelled D O G G E T T productions with an S dot com. And I bet you some of you are wondering, Bill Doggett. You know, i been wondering all evening, is that really related to the Bill Dugget, the musician? Yes, I'm Bill the II. I am the nephew and namesake of the, rock, of the jazz organist, the pioneer who most of you remember from 1956, the hugely important... Um, uh, dawn of Rock and Roll uh, R&B Instrumental called Honky Tonk Parts One and Two recorded by King Records. That record actually uh, becomes 60 years old. It celebrates its, it's the 60th anniversary this September. So hopefully you'll be hearing more about that. But please do check in with my website. Um,
1: okay, so that's Bill so Doggett Productions dot
2: is my website, and you can also reach out to me there. There is a contact page, contact link. So if you have want to contact me, you want to say, you know, Bill, that was an interesting program, you know, I understand you do this live, um, and you specifically have a really interesting multimedia, you know, presentation on the subject, which is even longer, it could be a full afternoon, a full evening, or even a course, a residency course, contact me. I can I'd be absolutely happy to, to share more of this and of all the other kinds of lectures that I present.
1: Okay, Bill, thank you so much. And everyone, please remember your ancestors' left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and Beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Bill.